Welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that always remembers, keeps a very careful eye on where the snakes are. Got our eyes open, our ears to the ground even. Does that help? Can you really hear a snake coming? They're pretty quiet, those little sinful bastards. (laughs) Bringing the the curse of sin into this world, (laughs) corrupting us all. It may be one of the only kind of Bible narratives and symbols that I can just get behind all the way. (laughs) 100% on board. Original sin, snakes, fine by me. The devil's vehicle. Yeah, that, that all checks out in my interpretation. For sure. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You ever find yourself staring down a ball of snakes, Amanda? Just a good old snake um, ball? Heck no. No way. And I even like lived yeah. up in, in Boone where we went on the Appalachian Trail and everything and nope. Yeah, not, you not just, about that life. Yeah. <laughs> you need to be attentive, but it's not it's not some plague or something. You it's not right. we're not overrun where we live with them, but it's just keep your head on a swivel. I will say in the COVID times, my final snake anecdote. But in the COVID time, since I walk outside a ton more than I ever used to, I definitely have run into more than I have in my life. But it's not, I think in the two years we've been doing this routine-ish, year and a half, I think I've seen three. So it's, you know, that's a manageable number. And none were rattlesnakes, I don't think, which are contained to the mountain regions. Yeah, just we just got to watch out for the copperheads. Mm-hmm, right, right. And those are usually smaller, is that true? I don't know. The ones that I've seen in my neighborhood have been small. Okay, Um, yeah. But I don't know if that's usual. I've definitely seen a giant, giant black snake that got into my house. Good grief. (laughs) Yeah, it was the most terrifying thing. I was like, it was when I first moved into my house. Oh, my God. I I would move. Yeah. (laughs) Wild. Wild. I mean, and I know those are the friendly kind, too. King snakes and black snakes, I think they're generally not dangerous to us and helpful for the yeah. environment i guess eating rodents but yeah, yeah not for me i would ha- you know just run away it was curled up by my tub my bathtub and just staring at me and i was like oh my God. good grief how did you get it yeah. out i ran out and i was like josh yeah oh so he took it out you didn't call anyone Nope. Um, he, cause I knew that it wasn't a poisonous snake, but I was like, I mean, that yeah. thing was humongous. I was like, I don't want it anywhere near me. And so he, um, he caught it he put it in like a rubber tub, like the giant big tubs that you store like clothes yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And he took it out to the greenway and let it go. Yeah. That's, I think it's not even that dangerous a proposition, just kind of a nuance. If you have somebody who doesn't have the fear in them, you know? Right. <laughs> it's it's just a mild annoyance. But yeah, to me, that would be really crippling. I, I definitely <laughs> yeah, could not do that. I could maybe trap it like under the tub, but then, you know, shifting it around or I don't know, I would struggle enormously. I definitely oh, would have yeah. died in the snake pit. If you, dear listeners, have no idea why we're starting opening with a four minute tangent about snakes, that is because we are here today to discuss the novel True Grit. This is our part two book club episode about that novel. It's a novel, again, True Grit by Charles Portis, which if if you've read it by now, you know why we're talking about snakes quite a bit. <laughs> we are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We have social media accounts you can follow and hope we do follow on Facebook and Instagram, where we do updates about what we're reading and the schedule, and just try and keep the, um, well, you know, the books and recommendations going. This is, again, a book club episode where we'll be spoiling, at this point, the entirety of the novel True Grit. So if you are averse to spoilers, then just be forewarned, and you may as well probably just not listen to this whole thing. If you've read the book, as we hope you always do, or if you're just 
you know, indifferent to spoilers, then welcome. You're in the right place. We'll be talking about the second half of the book, and at this point, the entirety of it is fair game. Any thoughts on True Grit, Amanda, before we dive in, or any... I would say I'd open the floor if you had anything negative to say about snakes, if you wanted to get anything else in. They're just... I, man, one of one of my friends, he, like, that's his thing. He loves snakes. He's got, like, three of them, and I'm just like, just look at their eyes, man. They just look evil. <laughs> like, yeah. It's one of my true pure phobias that is not crippling in my day-to-day life, which is good. I'm glad I, I'm stricken with a phobia that does not affect modern life in an everyday way but it it is definitely one that i cannot i'd have to go to you know some therapy to overcome it because it is so immediate and my reaction is so pure to encountering (laughs) a snake there's nothing confusing about it there's no mixed reaction at all so anyway we'll see how maddie fared in her snake pit today let's get into the segments here we'll start with highs and lows for this book now that we finished it we can speak on as it finished what we thought were some high points or low points amanda why don't you take it away with take it away rather with a high or low yeah i'll start with um i guess i'll just do my only low which is just the character the main villain which is cheney Kelmsford, whichever mm-hmm. name he wants to go by. Um, so I think that the author did some really great stuff with dialogue and pointing out that there's a little bit of good and bad in everyone. Each of the characters has kind of like a gray area to them, which is, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and we get a lot of that through the dialogue, but with Cheney, his dialogue is extremely like stilted. And we also don't get a sense of anything about him except for that he's, trashy and that he's bad (laughs) Um, yeah yeah so there's nothing redeeming about him except for maybe the fact that he is like really hard to kill um but i mean even the the other villain who's not even the main villain ned he had he's way more complex of a character than cheney is um so Mm -hmm. and he's not even the main villain so i that was my only thing that i was kind of like "Ah, i wish i could have seen that i mean i i understand because is coming from Maddie's point of view. And of course the guy that killed her father is not going to have any redeeming qualities, but she's otherwise like pretty fair minded about a lot of her dealings with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just found that one. I was kind of like, eh, I wish there was a little bit more to Cheney than that. Yeah. It matches Milo as well, which is the only one I had. I just didn't think any of the bandits were as compelling as the main characters. So, mm-hmm. Obviously, that's a disadvantage of page count time function within the narrative. It's it's not meant to be positioned from their point of view. But Maddie ends up spending a little bit of time, enough to banter with them, to have some back and forth and kind of engage. She doesn't do her sassiness as much, obviously, since she's a prisoner. So it's right. she doesn't quite have as many you know moments of, I don't know, but I was going to just say burns. As many burn moments, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's the elegant yeah. way to put it for sure. <laughs> she is definitely more withdrawn with, uh, around them. And even at some point, I think I remember highlighting on a page that not that she lied, but she immediately when they question her kind of gives in or doesn't, she just doesn't sass them. And she's also direct about what she's there to do with Cheney too. So there's yeah. that to her credit. But anyway, I think uh, there was a page two on 202. Let me pull this quote. But like when we meet Cheney, she shoots him, which is a great moment for her because she has decent banter about it. And then of course that it's such an immediate action and is very satisfying as a moment just because, you know, it's, it's the 
revenge that she so deserves. It's also an odd little symbolic moment. They're at this river across ways on opposite sides of this river together. So it's, you know, it's a nice little narrative moment, coincidental and everything. And it's his reaction to getting shot and sort of the things he says after that. It's, yeah, it's just felt flat. I mean, he said a couple of lines from him. Um, she says, there's a posse of op- officers up on the hill who will force you to go. That is interesting news, said he. How many is up there? And then she says, around 50. He says, I think I will oblige the officers to come after me. He began to gather the horses together. There were five of them. And he said, "If or she says, if you refuse to go, I will have to shoot you. He went on back with his work and said, oh, then you had better cock your piece. And then, you know, he helps her load it, which, you know, seems kind of sassy or snarky. Then, of course, again, very satisfying, uh, satisfactorily, she shoots him. But when he gets shot, he says, one of my short ribs is broken. It hurts every breath I take. And then he says, I regret that shooting, said he. Mr. Ross was decent to me, but he ought not to have meddled in my business. I was drinking and I was mad through and through. Nothing has gone right for me. And she, of course, retorts that he's trash. That's her favorite insult, probably. (laughs) (laughs) And... I don't, it just, there wasn't a dynamism to it. He didn't, he didn't come across as totally grimy, which I think, so I I don't know if I would agree with your assertion. I think the author maybe tried to make him seem like kind of a neutral force. There's also a quote later where he says he feels underestimated by the other bandits, like they're going to trick him and he's aware of it. He's basically, he says, I'm more intelligent than people think I am. You know, you can't, you can't fool me. I'm not a fool. And so I think there is this attempt to make him seem a bit normal, or, you know, as he keeps repeating it, that he just keeps having bad luck and bad timing and everything. It just never felt as convincing. His voice just felt a little flat. And I think it could just be that after 150 pages with her, finally encountering him, unless he was cartoonish or something, I just mm. don't know if anything's going to hold up to her. She's just too well yeah. written or something. So, yeah, it didn't, that part didn't grip me or engage me, I guess. But yeah, that that makes sense as far as like maybe that it's not that he wasn't didn't have anything like necessarily like redeeming about him or that he is too villainous because, yeah, he did say that he, he regretted shooting her dad, which I'd completely forgotten about. Um, mm-hmm. But I, maybe it's his motivations and stuff is just like he's so it's simple. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Simple. Whereas like. Well, Ned is also simple, but he also does seem to have a kind of moral code, mm-hmm. whereas Cheney's moral code is is completely selfish. Yeah, yeah, and it. I'm not sure. This is the other. This is that classic editor edit. I always seem to fall back into of imagining how else could it be have been done or something. But just within the story, I just thought he would maybe push back more, or if they yeah. wanted to go full sympathy with him, or that maybe that he was a little simple or something, or that he was being tricked by other bandits. It it just doesn't seem to pay off in any of those directions. He's just kind of a neutral force that puts up a lame defense. And I I, I picked that shooting reaction especially just because I thought. That's the perfect time to have him exclaim a bit more, maybe curse the fam. I don't know. It's just kind of like it was it yeah. all just felt very flat at that moment. It was just kind of like, OK, she the, her doing that and getting the revolver to work or whatever was all very satisfying. And she had her you know, she gets her insults in and it was, you know, a, a fun moment for her. So that was I'll say then and in segue into my high, my first one, of course, um, Maddie stayed strong throughout in terms of a characterization and just realization of a person. Her voice is incredible she's just so well realized it'd be very hard pressed I think anyone any person any reader to 
pick a low moment where it's she's not interesting or she's not intriguing. She yeah. also ends the book, I mean, kind of alone, which maybe is fitting for her. She seems like a person with an intense moral compass and strong sense of what's good and not not in the world and everything. But she does end it also by insulting the people that were working with Rooster when he died. And I just thought mm-hmm. that was great. I think she someone didn't get up for her when she entered her room and she ends the novel. I think the last word she speaks is calling him trash, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> Though I don't I can't be certain if it's the very final, but it's one of the last things that she speaks out loud is by calling yeah. him trash. So, yeah, keep yeah. your seat, trash, is what she says. <laughs> and then, no, yeah. that is 100% the last dialogue she gets in the whole story. So it just felt like her arc is well realized. It's a great vision of a person. And I guess going back to the prompt you gave me for this book, it was truly a great pick. I'll, I'll happily compliment myself on this random coincidence. I didn't think this book, I didn't think her character would be so strong or so interesting. But it really fit your prompt perfectly because she's yeah. a fascinating study. She really is, and and that was actually my my high as well is just the the characterization throughout the novel, um, especially with Maddie and Rooster. Like I think yeah, Rooster yeah. was really well developed as well, which is not surprising. Um, so the the John Wayne movie versions, there's actually three. So there's True Grit, and then one that's just about Rooster. And then a third one, which is also about Rooster, because John Wayne played Rooster. I had no idea. They kept Rooster yeah. going, huh? <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was... And, and Portis actually was, um, I guess, consulting with the movie True Grid. I don't know whether he did with the other two um, sequels there, but yeah. Uh, so I guess I'm not the only one who loved Rooster. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm, but um, mm-hmm. what I really liked, too, was... Um, and Maddie's voice did stay consistent and just how well realized she is as a person where she is vain, right? She's not just this like amazing person where she oh, has yeah. no flaws, yeah. but she's got some flaws. <laughs> like, yeah, definitely. Her vanity and her, uh, what I also found really interesting is her, her idea of like fairness and justice is almost childish in a lot of ways it's Mm -hmm, very mm -hmm. simplistic um so on page 209 at the bottom um when she's caught by uh ned and she's like sitting there with him at the campfire she says um he he says tell me what you're doing here i would be glad to tell you said i you will see i am in the right tom cheney there shot my father to death in fort smith and robbed him of two gold pieces and stole his mare her name is judy but i do not see her here i was informed rooster cogburn had grit and i hired him to find the murderer a few minutes ago i come came upon cheney down there watering horses he would not be taken in charge and i shot him if i had killed him i would not now be in this fix my revolver misfired twice um and and then she says so she's like you're going to see that I'm correct in my pursuit and you're going to be sympathetic towards me talking to Lucky mm-hmm. Ned Pepper, yeah. <laughs> a, a heartless bandit. And then later at, and on the next couple of pages, she keeps saying like, do, do you need a lawyer by the way? Because I have an amazing lawyer. Like, <laughs> it did, it did become, it did become broken record quality for her because she spent <laughs> yeah. most of the first third of the book, you know, making the same claim in the same threat. So, yeah. It's her go-to. It's but, her go-to. But what's great is that she was thinking. She has so so much faith in the law and in how specifically her lawyer 
works within the law and how that has not failed her yet. So I thought that was, um, that was pretty key to, to her as a character as well. So, and and it also like got me to laugh. I was like, (laughs) and he says, no, I don't need a good lawyer. I need a good judge. (laughs) Uh Yeah. 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 The looking back on the courtroom scene too, which does feel more critical the more you read throughout the book it you read it at first and it just seems like a good way to set up rooster his not aloofness but that his kind of neutrality in the face of the law or his kind of i don't know not neutral view of the law but just dismissal it's dismissive right he's he mm-hmm. just doesn't care that much he takes the ju- he does the justice he thinks is right and he does it quickly <laughs> doesn't isn't going to yeah. second guess much or think about things and there are some lines in there where it's clear that they're tr- really trying to get after him and maybe it paints him a bit sympathetically just in that he's yeah. being pursued but i think you could look back at it and read it quite differently which is that he happens to align with maddie in this way of they're they're both stubbornly they're both incredibly stubborn in what they believe is right and their pursuit of it pretty much comes to define the the book labouf notably yeah. more than those two is after money he's just you know he has a practical interest in this he's not exactly a revenge person he's not in it for right. revenge whereas rooster it's clear when he kills those two people and they smoke him out of their their thief den he doesn't really have any issue killing them you know i mean they they did obviously there's a little violence exchange so it's of course rooster it, he just is going to respond 100% in, you know, he's not going to hold back anything. Once the violence is starting, he's just going to be violent then to the maximum. Yeah. So it's, they both have extreme stubbornness and extreme senses of rightness, I suppose. So they're kind of a perfect pair from the start. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. My other high was just uh, when Maddie shoots the thief. I, it just felt so fitting. And I, I like that the novel doesn't end there because it could have been such a simple moment to have her be yeah. the one to, to deliver the killing blow. And that would, of course, be too tidy and not much of a, you know, that would be a brief novel, too. <laughs> but so, you know, there's obviously a lot more drama and action after. But it did feel fitting just to have that moment of her total clarity. And she'd been talking a lot of talk, obviously throughout the entire story and hadn't done much except hired some people and had ridden through the wilderness a bit. Like she had mostly been an observer and things. So it just Mm -hmm. felt great to have her get a really active moment where, you know, she gets to do her best rooster impression. And what's great too, is that she is, you know, an innocent in a lot of ways, which is why her, her belief in, in the law and in her lawyer and in the power of like yeah, giving out her name and saying like why are you treating me like this i am maddie ross from <laughs> dardanelle arkansas <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the that that simplicity that that sense of innocence by shooting him but not killing him that also preserves her innocence but still gives her that sense of vengeance that she's looking for yeah yeah then maybe the novel would have twisted a little bit if she who knows what her older woman adult reflections would have been if she had to kill him in the moment who knows what she would have said about that you know sometimes justice is just uncomfortable i don't you know who knows what she would have reflected upon then any other highs or lows rooster (laughs) i know yeah dang she'd be committing war crimes in no time yeah um my my other high is just um Maddie's observations in general, I think that mm-hmm. she's got some funny insights, but also she's got some some really relevant insights. And um, so in the second to last paragraph, which is um, of the entire book, which is on page 253, she is um, talking about about like how people 
view her, but how why she doesn't care about other people's opinions. Um, especially since like she she's talking about how people love to talk. They love to slander you if you have any substance. They say, I love nothing but money in the Presbyterian Church, and that is why I never married. They think everybody is dying to get married. It is true that I love my church and my bank. What is wrong with that? I will tell you a secret. Those same people talk mighty nice when they come in to get a crop loan or beg a mortgage extension. I never had the time to get married, but it is nobody's business if I am married or not married. I care nothing for what they say. I would marry an ugly baboon if I wanted to and make him cashier. I never had the time to fool with it. A woman with brains and a frank tongue and one sleeve pinned up and an invalid mother to care for is at some disadvantage. Although I will say I could have had two or three old and tidy men around here who had their eyes fastened on my bank. No, thank you. So, um, she doesn't care. That's That's just like even into her yeah. spinsterhood yeah. and her old age, she doesn't care about what other people think. But she's also pointing out the hypocrisy of that, where it's like, oh yeah, you you make you know you're saying that I'm a I'm alone and that I'm a spinster and that I'm miserable because I only care about religion and money. And she's like, but you'll use it to your advantage if you if you try to take advantage and and you want me to get married to somebody, but the people who want to marry me, it's not for love. It's for money. So she's, I I like that. She's able to like point out the inconsistencies in societal expectations like that. Yeah. It's I, I do you think the end of the novel portrays her positively? Not that we need to boil these things down to such simple kind of dichotomies or whatever, because it did feel it felt a little harsher with her at the end than I thought it might. Not that, of course, as she puts it in her own words, that she needs, you know, a marriage or some kind of stereotypical end life to find happiness. And maybe she doesn't like being around people anyway. But it just felt, I guess it felt fitting in a way, but maybe not positive, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that it's not going to be your typical happy ending, but it it is perfect for her character mm-hmm, and there's yeah. I, I can't imagine a different ending for her yeah just because yeah. she's so, such a prickly character too yeah she loves so. to negotiate and she can do yeah. that until the end of her days haggling <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all the way to the end <laughs> yeah yeah no it's it felt very fitting i suppose i just hoped because obviously when rooster saves her and delivers her to that not hospital but that uh, whatever it was a house a safe way whatever i they never interact again you know they never there's no dialogue between them there's no speaking so it is kind of a quiet ending in that way it definitely withholds i think which yeah. you know i don't in a sense feels right i don't think their relationship was one that needed a long expository come down you know yeah Pretty brief she and just, transactional. Yeah, she, I guess, like, you know, she made sure that he got paid and everything, but she wanted to, I think, personally thank him. Yeah, And yeah. never really got the chance to, to do so. And she makes a point of pointing out that her lawyer did go and apologize, which seems like something she would care about. That's just yeah. who, you know, that those kinds of demands is who she became or who she was in the story. Let's jump to our essays. We've d- jumped around some analysis here, but we'll dive in with a second segment here. This is when Amanda and I have imagined an essay for one another. Uh, we do not write the essays, of course. We just outline them and plan some thoughts based on them. So one final analytical thing that we can do with the story. Amanda, do you want to take your essay on first today? You feeling sure. ready? Okay. 
I'm ready. My essay question for you is, at the center of this narrative is Maddie, and I have to imagine that the novel gets canonized or at least remembered because of what the author accomplished with her. So I think my essay is going to be a bit of a zag then and ask this question. How do Labeef, is it, it is Labeef, right? LaBeouf. He pronounces it Labeef, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go with Labeouf. <laughs> That's why in my head I like that oof, oof sound, you know, just like yeah. a, yeah, just kind of like an exhalation. Anyway, how do Labeouf and Rooster function in the narrative? What are their roles in your mind? How would you analyze their relationship to one another? So get, let's give it away to those secondary characters here if you prefer to take it away. Yeah, um, the way that I viewed them is that they are the opposites of the law. Of, of how to handle the law. Mm-hmm. So um, LaBeouf is an actual Texas Ranger and was specifically sent to retrieve Kelmsford. And he's doing his job and is adamant that he be able to bring Kelmsford back alive to be tried. So he is specifically following the instructions of the justice system that's set down um, in Texas. And he, I mean, he does talk about like the money aspect and, and I'm sure that that's a driving factor as well, but he, he's like really adamant about the, the alive aspect. And I think that for him, it is because he is working within the laws themselves Yeah. Um, yeah. versus Rooster. Um, he also works for the law because he's a marshal, um, yeah, but seems, he yeah, yeah. yeah he operates outside of the law as well, um, which is actually the first fact that we're we're told about him, and that's on page um, twenty five when um, she's trying to figure out which marshal to go for, and um, he says the meanest one is Rooster Cogburn. He is a pitiless man, double tough. And fear don't enter into his thinking. He loves to pull a cork. So he's the meanest. Mm-hmm. He's pitiless. Um, and then the next time that we really see him is the first dialogue that we encounter with him, which is the the courthouse. And the um, the defending lawyer is questioning him about his, you know, killing a couple of suspects (laughs) and um so we see that immediately we're set to think that rooster is more of like almost a vigilante rather than a law-abiding officer so in in that way i think they're they're pretty opposite um and just because they're opposites that doesn't mean that they are not able to work together um so they have a common goal which is money and uh retrieving cheney um but it's just also that their moral compasses are completely different they're almost foils for each other in a way um so LaBeouf is, is a black and white kind of guy so if you're thinking like D &D, he's like the paladin so he is lawful good he's got he follows the societal rules that are set about for him and um he follows the rules and and, and an example of that is during the attempted ambush of ned and his gang he questions rooster about the plan specifically making note that rooster would likely if the plan were to work have to shoot one of the bandits in the back which goes against his idea of like you know chivalry and and other societal expectations of a a clean fight Mm -hmm. um but earlier he has no issue with beating maddie to stop her from following them into danger but that again falls in with his sense of 
of like his duties and his responsibilities as a ranger. And so anything to follow the laws, to follow the rules that are set out for him. And he thinks that Maddie, since she has, you know, is a child. Yeah. A bit of a gender or age hierarchy there that he wants to uphold. I think you could read it either in either direction, I think, or both directions. Yeah. I think both. So he has to, by striking out at her like that, it is in direct response to the idea that she is breaking with the, those hierarchies that he believes in. Mm-hmm. Um, versus Rooster, <laughs> um, he's all about the end justifying the means, so he's kind of like chaotic, maybe maybe not even good, chaotic neutral in a lot of ways. So he doesn't need to follow rules. He'll follow the rules when it like helps him out in, in the long run. And he does good things, but he also does some really evil, selfish things too. But he does have his own moral code. Um, and that's, and that helps to show that he's not all like bad. So for example, we see him punishing the boys um, when they get into town who were torturing the donkey, the tied up donkey. They're like torturing it and he lets the donkey go and then he starts like kicking the boys. Yeah, he beats them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, because they're hurting a defenseless animal. He stops LaBeouf from beating Maddie because she is defenseless in that position and that goes against his moral sense. In the very end, he saves her life by like foregoing any other care he is just i mean he put he kills the horse he kills the horse yeah it's critical he kills the horse and then he nearly kills himself right he's like panting he's sweating all over her he's like he's not a fit guy uh but no (laughs) carrying her into fort smith and like so he's her life is is more important than his own life in 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 that sense too so he's mm-hmm. he's got his own moral compass and he he does do you know some bad things he does kill people in cold blood he doesn't care right but these are also bad guys right they're bandits and and they steal they murder they you know pillage and everything else so um i guess just in in general i would say that they are the same as far as um, perhaps some of their their goals, but that their approaches to them are different, which then makes them um, like literary foils to one another. Yeah, yeah, almost definitely. And you could, I think their introductions set that up pretty well too. I know you you talked a lot fittingly about the later plot moments and stuff, but the even the way she interacts with them right away, the. Mm-hmm. Labeef, Labeouf comes in with a creepy, that creepy quote about wanting to kiss her, which she has a great retort to. There's just, yeah, yeah, their interactions are just so polar opposite. It's, it is strange though. I think so much could be read into how both of them treat violence. I think it's, you, you Mm -hmm. brought up so many good examples though, because it's, on the one hand, Rooster has is such a comfortability with it. I mean, he has to clarify on the trial whether he shot or killed. That's a those are significant numbers in his mind. Like it's yeah. you know I've, he's done a lot of both. So which one? Which number do you want? And then obviously Labeef is he's an expert marksman too. So it's a little more detached, a little more clinical for him. I think the violence, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't, yeah. There's just so much that could be written about those two characters and be, becoming violent. Yeah, violence is just a way of life for them. It's not even something to to blink at, right? It's just so ingrained. Mm-hmm. Well, except when Rooster does blink, 
when he doesn't want her beaten anymore, when he doesn't want the kids beating yeah. the. That's why I think it's fast. Those examples are so fascinating. Yeah. You know. It's, Any other who, thoughts who on is those the violence two? Directed at is is important. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. No question. Any other thoughts on those two? As as justice foils, literary uh, foils. Nope. I think I'm good. Yeah. I, I do like that you invoked the D and D good versus lawful. <laughs> what what was that be called? Like a char- It's like a Punnett square, basically. Yeah. Yeah. The alignment. Um, yeah. Alignment there. chart. That's the yeah. yeah. That, that's the term for it. If uh, you listener don't have any clue what we're talking about, it's you take um, on the left side of a grid and on the bottom side of a grid. So I guess the y and x axes, right? On mm-hmm. the y, yeah. you put. Is it normally that's where good bad neutral goes or is that evil it's yeah good neutral evil and then you have lawful neutral chaotic that's the other one chaotic is the yes and so then you have nine squares that you can you know match characters in and everything so i think that's well said i think that you know i don't know if portis had D &D in mind when he wrote this but (laughs) as it turns out you can (laughs) use the you can use those terms to analyze just about any character interaction that you want Yeah. yeah okay cool do you want to throw your question at me i am ready Yep. Uh, the idea of justice and the failings of the justice system is a prominent motif and theme in this book. So how does Rooster fit in or not with the way justice is portrayed in this novel? Yeah, I'm going to overlap with a lot of what you said, which I think is perfectly fine. It's he's a fa- If you're not going to study Maddie, then I think he is the next person to come to mind just in right. terms of his depth and his oddities and unique moments and everything. So... Let's start when he's in court. This is the clearest sense of literal justice, you know, held up by a system, held up by courts and juries and judges and everything of the government, government backed justice. So I think it's it's also worth noting, I should mention maybe, uh, uh, oh, I'm already rambling, <laughs> but I should mention too, <laughs> it's very noteworthy I found later in the story that he reveals, and when he rambles and tells tales on the road, you don't know if they're true. Maddie herself imagines that he was lying about some of it, but he does make yeah. it pretty clear and he's very honest that he got his job just through nepotism. He, he's not some grandly ordained, I don't, you know, we think of marshals as, in most governmental positions now, as like, it's, you know, the bureaucracy's complicated, you have to go through through many interviews and yada yada get vetted especially in those advanced justice uh, police type positions that's the hope anyway and so but he just lucked into his job he was wandering yeah. around after the civil war which in which he fought for the confederacy and then he didn't have anything to do and took up odd jobs and then eventually somebody he knew could get him a job as a marshal they deputized him quickly and then he started just shooting people so it's it's not very glamorous and it's not like he is a marshal, which is, I think, we our modern brain, when it flocks to that term or thinks of that term, just has a completely different spin. So I'm glad that's yeah. in the story, because it makes it pretty clear right away, not right away, actually, it's later in the story, but it, it does make it pretty clear that their notions of governmental agents and the kind of checks and balances on them is not the same as it probably is today. Yeah, when and in that scene when he um, gets deputized as a marshal because of his friend Potter, the reason he was brought to Potter in the first place is because the he shot at a guy, and so he was being brought to justice. They were asking to jail him so that they like so that they could take him to court. Mm-hmm. And Potter's like, "Yeah, sure." And then he like turns around, and is like, "Let's go get you deputized." <laughs> yep, yep. 
Time to get the badge on. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> yeah. I guess I bring that up first, even before the court scene, because that bit of backstory is critical. At least, again, I think for a modern reader who maybe, when they hear U.S. Marshal, thinks of a totally different, you know, bureaucratic system, anyway. Right. But when he's in court, is crucial. He essentially summarizes his own philosophical view on page 52. It, his sense of justice is very immediate, it's very harsh. And it's not very contemplative. I don't think it has a lot of room for reflection or change. You know, he's very stubborn in that way, like Maddie. And, you know, the the guy's grilling him about how many people have you shot or killed. And so, you know, it's obviously then his quote here simply, I never shot nobody I didn't have to. And then he talks about killing. And then he says, I killed around 12 or 15 stopping men in flight and defending myself. And so that's. Those are two quotes basically summarize his view is if he determines that it's an immediate uh, threat, then it's killing time. And if he believes that he has to do it, which for him, that trigger or that switch going from don't have to to have to. It does seem just a little fast, I think, for most people. He's I, The cliche I thought of here was the shoot first, ask questions later. Now, that's kind of a cliche we can chuckle about. If you wanted to take this a lot more seriously, we could invoke things like the stand your ground laws in certain U.S. states that have resulted in like shootings that probably otherwise did not have to exist or happen. Obviously, the U.S. is also plagued by modern gun issues, unknown in any, literally any other country that has, yeah. you know, a, like, functioning country, uh, governmental apparatus, if, you know, and isn't and isn't prone to things like revolution or revolt or whatever. So, it's, you know, of, of those nations on Earth, the U.S. has a gun problem unlike any other. So there's that, too. But in terms of just the story, getting back to the story, then, it, he just is not the person you want with a gun. Now, in his world, obviously, um, that is a sense of justice that maybe is a bit more appropriate. But notably, the courts are coming after him in the story. You know, they do come after him yeah. in the end. He has to li- live his life. So in that, and in that sense, he has to live his life. I should finish that sentence. Sorry. On the fringes, you know, doing gun shows and being an entertainment kind of an oddity. <laughs> I like that note when he, when the show comes to town of like, please bring your women and children. It's safe kind of a thing. He's that, he's that <laughs> yeah. kind of a relic. You know, you just don't know who's going to be safe around him. Is it fitting and moral even to bring the women and children around this, you know, ancient violent creature in a sense? And so that felt like a pretty brutal ending for him, but maybe fitting that he's just a relic of the past. What I was going to say, and interrupted my own line of thought by saying, but I'll get back to is in that sense, this does fit the trope of the fading West. So much of the story is not hitting that. So so many Westerns are about, this is going away. We had this freedom. We had this adventure. We had all this, you know, sense of exploration, and now it's all gone, and civilization's creeping in. We can't live freely anymore, yada, yada. That's the classic Western trope. And the only thing in the story like that is him. He's the, yeah. he's the one who gets kind of pushed out and relegated to historical oddity footnote in a circus. So... I don't know. I, that was a rambling part of that answer for sure, but I think in there was some truths about his position in the story and, I don't know, senses of justice for him. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on his court, time in court, or any uh, of that? The other moment, then, I'll, I'll get to two other moments. The I think probably at the forefront of people's minds in this question of him and justice, notions of justice, it has to be when he saves Maddie from Labeef's switch. I, that's... Mm-hmm. It, just because, not because it comes out of left field, to use a cliche, but because up until that point, he himself almost hit her it, it, when she was hackling, uh, heckling him and taunting him 
when they were trying to get the deal sorted and get the money sorted. So to see that turn is definitely noteworthy. It's also, of course, the final thing that happens before they all go out together and finally agree to be a party. So... I feel like that's a moment of close that deserves really close analysis, but I'm not sure what to take away from it other than he is again incredibly stubborn. Once he decides that he's hit her enough times, it's he just immediately goes to "I will kill you." Then <laughs> there's no there's no step between "Hey, let's think of this over," or you know maybe we say <laughs> if you really want to hit her, if that's to you how she should be punished or dealt with, why don't we pick a number? Or you know maybe we think about maybe you're doing this rat in a rash way, and we give it some time. Think it you know do we have to? You, maybe you're just re- responding emotionally. I don't know. I'm not trying to come up with these different uh, defense arguments for hitting kids it's obviously that is a time pretty well in the past uh for most of us anyway i think maybe in some parts of mississippi it's i think that isn't that the only state you can still hit kids in schools i I only say all that as a rambling aside because i've taught in schools and it was definitely something you hear about occasionally where it's like there is there there is a state that still allows it it's either alabama or mississippi i'd bet a lot of money on that that allows for corporeal punishment it can only be done by the admin and it has to be with another adult there i'm like 99 percent certain of this (laughs) because i remember seeing or reading this could also in the you know i haven't taught in a classroom or in a school in five years or so so it could be even that in those five years it's gone away Uh, again anyway rambling anecdote just to say I don't know if, it, if it's for him about the, the childlike innocence of it. Maybe it is, you know, maybe, and that could reflect in the moment you brought up so well about he wants to protect that innocent animal. So maybe there is a sense in him of protecting innocent things, but it, I don't know. It also just seems like he, when he wants to flip a switch, it's flipped and you, there's no flipping it back. That's mm-hmm. to see him escalate from, hey, you shouldn't hit her to I will kill you right now is just, <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, it's rather intense. And that his sense of justice is in that moment shown in, you know, as best, um, you know, synecdoche way as you'd want or symbolic ways you'd want. It's just that it's absolute in his mind and... It, it's impossible for him to, you know, backtrack or to consider, contemplate other ways. You know, it will be the biggest mistake you ever made, you Texas brush popper, is what he says. And of course, <laughs> he pulls his revolver too. He cocks it through. He throws it down. Like it's, he's not ambiguous about this, and he also makes this decision incredibly quickly. Any thoughts on him saving Maddie from the switch? Uh, nope, you covered it well. Okay. Yeah. Any thoughts on corporeal punishment for children? Just kidding. I, I want. I, I will. Not, <laughs> every time I'm able, I will invoke. You know, I'll bait you into commenting on your real life, and then I'll immediately backpedal. Don't say anything about it. It's okay. I was just joking. <laughs> let's not. You know, let's not bring real life into this, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is foreign to our time for the most part, though. Not, of course, not entirely. Um, but in in our time, in our place, that's something pretty. It, it's just a. I don't know. It's an odd scene. I have a hard time analyzing because I don't know if the book intends for it to be as intense and symbolic a moment as a modern reader would take it to be. There might be a Mm. slight little, there's a little like small gap between those two interpretations, if that makes sense to me. But, you know, I also can't, it's the first time they've openly disagreed. So that's significant. And it's right before they finally all settle in as a party. So it is kind of like a final resolution of a type where they all, this is like a final crucial test for them all to pass to then forge ahead together. So I think it has a ton of significance, but I just, I don't know. I had a hard time, I guess, unpacking that one. It's, it is complex. 
but that's it does it give is. that sense of his sense of justice all right final thought here this one's going on long for me and i only pulled three too geez who knows if i had to pull four this could last for an hour the final scene then that i'll talk about briefly there's a lot of others but he, when he takes maddie to safety uh, you know he makes up his mind she's been snake bit it's a it's an absolute state right she will either die or live depending on getting an antidote and so I think he just thrives in that moment because there's no question of what has to be done. There's a, it's an absolute situation is placed in front of him, and he treats it in those terms. He rides the horse literally to death. She begs yeah. him not to do that, and he says, no way, it's happening. Like, this horse will die underneath us, and then I'll carry you the rest of the way. And so I think on 244... Or is that the page for that? Well, I, I suppose I just want to say the page when the horse does die and she cries out for him to stop and to save the save the trusty donkey that had done so well for her. Oh, here it is. Yeah, she says, stop, I said. We must stop. He is played out. Rooster paid me no heed. Blackie was all and in, and as he stumbled to make it to stop, Rooster took his dirk knife and cut a brutal slash in the pony's withers. Stop it, stop it, I cried. Little Blackie squealed and burst forth in a run under the stimulation of the pain. So th- we shouldn't ignore that moment or that buildup, too. He, you know, literally is cutting it to get it to run. I mean, I know you, yeah. you hit, can hit horses to make them go faster, whip them, but he's going to the to the ends of it. You know, he's literally cutting it to death to why well, don't you know i don't know about to death but he's cutting it to make to motivate it so it's 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 just so intense and his he obviously doesn't shirk from violence and even embraces it to get what he wants or to kind of achieves the ends that he wants and so that little divergence for them there where she's willing to save it to maybe sacrifice her own life or something she doesn't put it in those terms but the story does you know it's either she gets the antidote quickly and if, if they slow down or don't get there, then she might die or something significant might happen. I just think that that was a final moment to show his relentlessness, that his his version of justice, even if it's clouded, even if it's a drunkard's, you know, the hazy version at times where he's not certain exactly what he wants or how he should want it or what he should want. It just is a bit of a, like I said, a, a switch flipping. So, yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on that scene or how he felt that should go? Uh, it was that was that was a brutal scene. Um, he's whipping the horse first and then cutting and then rubbing salt into the wound, and then just like immediately like hopping off once it dies and is like, well. <laughs> yeah, and she. It's interesting. Final thing I'll bring up. The like I said, they diverge there. It's significant, I think, to read it in that way. But then, when she hears about him later, he of course kills the people in the trial that he wanted to kill and wasn't and failed to. So he comes yeah. back around for that. You know, his bloodlust, if you want to call it that, may be a harsh way to phrase it, but it, it doesn't relent. You know, he does get he gets the guy he wanted. But she yep. says later, so he killed him in a duel, and she says, of course, Wharton was a convicted murderer and a fugitive from the gallows. But there was a stir about the manner of the shooting. Rooster shot two other men that were with Wharton and killed one of them. They must have been trash or they would not have been in the company of the thug but they were not wanted by the law at that time and Rooster was criticized. He had many enemies. Pressure was brought and Rooster made to surrender his federal badge. We knew nothing of it until Rooster was o- or it was over and Rooster was gone. So she does take some sympathy for his position and she does align with his view in the end and kind of trusts him to make the right decisions about who should be shot and who should not. I think right. we as readers 
I and the reason I didn't read the ending maybe positively, quote unquote, is because I think we're obviously meant to be a bit more skeptical of him than she is, given that he saved her life and and helped her in her revenge mission. So it does read kind of her backing him like that at the end lets us know for sure that she is also not she's an incredible character and is like a beautiful thing to read but i don't think we're supposed to end up being like yeah these two know what know what justice should be (laughs) at least to answer your to answer your question specifically about justice justice system all that stuff so it's yeah a long-winded answer for sure i hadn't imagined i would talk for that long at all but those are my thoughts about rooster and Justice, probably the theme I thought about the most, I would say, in the story, the motif. Yeah, and and after he's uh, removed from from that, he moves down to Texas with Potter's mm-hmm. widow, and then abandons right, her right. and joins like this unsavory brigade up up in Wyoming or something like that. And it's like he had yeah. legitimacy as as a marshal, but then after he was kicked out of the marshals, it was like he he just kind of couldn't keep the straight and narrow there and became became somebody who who lived on the fringes of the law rather than somebody who yeah. worked for the law. And this is all to say nothing of there's an aside in there about and Lebouf does push him on this about how he was probably a war criminal. I, I know I dropped that sort of jokey reference yeah. earlier in the episode, but that that's a legitimate part of the story. I just didn't know anything about that person, Quantrill that he was with. I I didn't really get that reference other than I just assumed it must have been something pretty bad since Lebouf kept poking at it to see if he would admit to it. But yeah, it was apparently they did some horrible things, murdered some people, and did some war crimes, essentially, in the name of yeah, the Confederacy. I, I briefly read up on it, and Quantrill and his men had killed a bunch of civilians. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's Rooster definitely on the fringes of what, what a just life would look like, I think. In, in yeah. the author, I think, positions in that way. But as you noted, I think, right away up top... It's it's all a bit a bit shades of gray in this story. That's maybe what recommends this novel so well, or why it holds up so well. Is he has moments of redemption. He has a doggedness to him that you admire. He has, uh, shall we say, true grit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so yeah, there is that. Okay, let's move on from the essays. Unless you have other thoughts on either of those prompts. Nope, I'm good. Let's talk about the lost pages. This is a brief little segment we do when we finish a book, just so we can convey something we thought should have been included in the story, something we wish there was more of. We could talk about, I don't know, sections that we would include or maybe follow-up things, anything we want more of, basically. Amanda, what are your lost pages for this novel? Um, I think that the book is pretty complete as it is, um, Mm -hmm. but as just like my curiosity and stuff. I, I really enjoyed Rooster's character and I'd like to yeah, read yeah. a more detailed account of his adventures, both before and after Maddie. There's like, you know, hints to it and, and there's mentions of it, but his, his life is, is so fascinating. Yeah. hundred um, percent. And his character is so fascinating too. So I guess I just have to watch those John Wayne movies. <laughs> <laughs> that might be as close as you ever come to it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is exactly what I put. I said it's like a tidy little, it's not a long novel, but it's very tidy, ties itself up well. The narrative is complete for sure. So, yeah, mine would be I wrote down The Wild Adventures of Rooster Cogburn. That's my idea for Lost Pages for sure. It's the yep. misdeeds he had. I, I will say this 
if you're going to explore those civil war war crimes, maybe that would be quite a different. I don't. That might take a different tone. I don't know if that story could get away with this book's tone, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. To have Cogburn mm-hmm. be the most mild person in a bandit gang would be, a, or an outlaw gang would be fascinating. If he was somehow the yeah. neutral force, <laughs> the voice of reason, or something, I'd be fat. I'd be interested in it for sure. I, I would read it. I'd be. I'd love to see what the author or an author would do with that idea, but seeing somebody commit those atrocities is gonna would take a slightly different hand. This is a straightforward yeah. revenge mission with pretty weakly portrayed bandits and such, so it's yeah. I, but I do think on the whole, the, following him along in his life would be the natural place for the story to go, or you know, just mm. things I'd like more of. Yep. Did you? It's notable that neither of us wanted to hear more about the beef. <laughs> <laughs> no more beef. <laughs> well, he's he's such a a lawful character. It's like eh. yeah, yeah. He's a bit bland in his way, competent, but yeah. yeah, yeah. He was basically just there to be a sounding board for Maddie's stand-up routine. <laughs> yeah, to be a, a test object for her for her jokes. So, and he did that quite well. So, congrats to him yeah. on that. <laughs> okay, excellent. Yeah, those are the lost pages for me too. Let's move on then to our final segment for the pod and on this book. It is going to be critical assistance. We always end episodes with this. It's when we pull criticism from other people who are not ourselves just to hear some other opinions about what we read and so we can give some commentary on it and some brief chat, chatter rather, about what other people think. Why don't you start yours off? Yours is much more in-depth and long than mine, which I think works out perfectly. I, I do want to ask before you start yours, though, did Donna Tart, who you're going to talk about, did she write an afterword in your book also? She did. Yeah, I was going to pull from that, and then I decided not to because I thought you might do it. Well, um, she mentioned her um, mm-hmm. in, in the article that I pulled up. She mentioned writing the afterword, but it's, uh, yeah. it's different. Yeah. No, 100%. Um, you, I'm glad you dug it up. She writes very well. She wrote a, a kind of a meaningful afterword and I thought had some pretty keen insights on the story and why it's so good and everything. But yeah, and mm-hmm. so that, I just wanted to shout that out because I thought the afterword was really, yeah, it was a nice reflection and I enjoyed reading it when I finished the book and everything. So that's worth pointing out too. Anyway, why don't you take it away? Uh, This is from the New York Times, and it's called Donna Tart on the Singular Voice and Pungent Humor of Charles Portis. Um, And so she she actually got to speak to Portis. um, So a lot of the article is actually like her interactions with him because she did an audio book of True Grit. And she wanted to, like, make sure that she nailed um, Maddie's voice and everything like that. Excellent. So she shared some anecdotes about him, um, which were actually really funny. Uh, not surprising. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So she wrote, uh, Portis caught better than any writer than alive the complex and highly inflected regional vernacular I heard spoken as a child, mannered and quaint, old-fashioned and highly constructed, but also blunt, roughshod, lawless, inflected by Shakespeare and Tennyson and King James, but also by agricultural g- gazetteers and frilly old Christian pamphlets, by archaic dictionaries of phrase and fable, by the voices of mule drivers and lady news newspaper poets and hanging judges and hellfire preachers i was like that's that is accurate <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah that was, that's definitely maddie's voice she's got she's got the uh the elevated discussions about like specifically when she talks about law and about political mm-hmm. history she's very knowledgeable but then some of her other ideas are, are really just like 
childish and innocent and her prejudices against Republicans and um, Catholics, I find, yeah, were it's, really telling. <laughs> it's noteworthy that her go-to line of defense, other than her lawyer, is the Bible, a book that is yep. at, at once incredibly complex and has such a strong literary history and tradition, and at other times can be interpreted in the most insane, childish manner. So it's, yep. it is quite fitting <laughs> that that is her grounding kind of text for the world <laughs> that she wants to interpret everything through the lens of. And so, yeah, it's perfect. Um, she goes on to write, comedy is the most ephemeral of the arts. There are very few comic novels that do not wither with time and even fewer novels, comic or otherwise, that can be given to pretty much anyone from an old person to a small child. Even more rare is a novel one can reliably turn to for cheer when one is sick or sad. But True Grit is this rare novel and Maddie Ross, its narrator, is one of the greatest of Portis's innocence. So I thought that was interesting. Like, the she's pointing out that um maddie is an innocent in a lot of ways she is but she's also not because she shoots the guy Uh and she's like very specifically going on this mission in order to shoot him (laughs) yeah what a moment of revelation for her too it's yeah Yeah. quite meaningful it's I think the commentary there about the comic novel and everything definitely holds up to me. She And I think she is meant to seem pretty innocent. We've talked and analyzed her character in that sense, but it it wouldn't be the first word that came to mind for me, for her. Because yeah. she's, she's implicated in enough things to think. It's odd, though, because this story is not a Bildungsroman or something. I don't think she comes yeah. to any revelations. It's sort of like she's she's the most adult child you've ever known, or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it's a novel of growing for her, and she doesn't portray it. it maybe in that sense, it's meaningful that she narrates it then. Because if this was in third person, you could see all kinds of passages about you know she'd never forget that moment, or you know it changed her all that cliched stuff. So yeah, any other quotes you want to share? Um, yeah, I'll just, uh, this is when she actually talks to him. If there's a guiding style of Portis's books, it's those tangents and lively asides, like the way that Maddie speaks. When I asked him about the origins of True Grit, he told me that after he left the Tribune, he, he worked for a newspaper, and didn't have much to do, he liked nothing better than to go to the library and read rambling local color pieces in the archives of rural newspapers. Those homely old American voices, by turns formal, tragicomic and haunting are crystallized on every page of his work with the immediacy one sometimes sees in a daguerreotype 150 years old one would have to return to the 19th century and twain to find another author who captured those particular cadences as well as he and we've talked about like how great we thought the dialogue is in this Mm -hmm. novel Yeah, yeah and 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 i i like that she points out that like it's it's the dialogue is something that we we don't often see that's so revealing and so accurate uh for mm-hmm. that time yeah. and that place and and I like the comparison to um Twain's dialogue as well. I thought that mm-hmm. was pretty fitting. And it compares favorably, I would say. I mean, this author was unknown to me in a formal sense. I had seen the movie and never had read any of his books. But yeah, it's even after one book of kind of study and reading, it's pretty clear that he can strike those chords just as well as Twain did, I think. Yeah. Yeah, impressive work for sure. And the vernacular is quite unique. It's, again, I maybe wasn't as blown away by it with the 
bandits for some reason or other, but it, overall, the book has an incredible sense of voice. Maddie's narration alone does all the lifting, mm-hmm. all the heavy lifting. You don't need oh, more yeah. than that for it to be considered excellent, you know? That's all it would take. <laughs> and, you yep. know, as it turns out, a lot of the other characters are interesting, too. Yep. Good. Any other thoughts from that article or quotes you want to share? Nope. Yeah, it's I think she has a good sense of it's why it matters or why it's so impactful. I hope it does stick around. It's I remember in the afterward that she wrote, she mentions that it used to be taught very widely in schools, then just kind of fell out. I could see it being taught in schools. There's plenty of things you could dig into with this book. Oh, for sure. You know, and for near and if so many schools want to ban Mark Twain books, then just pick this one off the shelf. English teachers. No problem. Very (laughs) easy decision. Just be like, okay, I guess we're reading this one instead. (laughs) Oops. Yeah. Too bad. Anyway. Yeah. Twain is definitely in that pantheon now, but this book by Portis is up there for sure. Yeah. All right, my critical assistance is from an NPR interview with another author. So this is a series they did. I forget the name of it, but if you Google it, you'd find it. They interviewed authors about books that they love. So it's kind of like an authors on authors segment, mm-hmm. part of an NPR series. The interview they interviewed an author named George um, Pelicanos or Pelicanos. I don't. I've never read any of that author's works, but this is the interview he gave. I only pulled two quotes. It was actually a really brief interview, but these quotes I thought were interesting. One of them is, Maddie's voice, Rye and Sure, is one of the great creations of modern American fictions. I, or fiction. I put it up there with Huck Finn's, and that is not hyperbole. In fact, I find True Grit to be one of the very best American novels. It is a rousing adventure story and deeply perceptive about the makeup of the American character. Wow. I, would, I would tend to agree. I will say that of all the periods of time in American lit that I have read into or studied in school and any of that... The kind of openness of the West was not one of them. I think Twain has some interest in that direction for sure, but his novels are about other concerns as well. It's not quite about expansion or how the expansion of the West is over either. Though that's, you know, in terms of the American kind of mythology and everything, history of the country, that's a significant part of it. So I think... putting this quote in that context does seem appropriate. It does take an extremely significant moment for American you know, history and development and part of its character, as they say, and and portrays it meaningfully and comically. So, yeah, I mostly agree with that quote. Yeah, and again, another comparison with Twain. <laughs> it's that humor. It's the humor yeah. and the realization of the character's voice, treating the yeah. dialect, the vernacular with such care, hitting some regional stuff along the way. I feel like that's got to be the comparison, right? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And meaningful comparisons there, and I think fair. Fair comparisons. The other quote I pulled is this. Most important, it can be appreciated by readers of various ages, education levels, and economic backgrounds. It's an egalitarian work of art. True Grit is one of the few books my sons let me read to them and paid attention to when they were younger. I have every intention of reading it to my daughter one of these days. I think she will like the spirit of Maddie. How do you feel about this? Because both Donna Tart and this person, George um, Pelicanos or Pelicanos, have taken up this idea that it's sort of this universal work for age groups especially. What do you think yeah. about that? It's impossible for us to say. We don't have a third chair on the pod yet of like a 10-year-old. Maybe maybe we should. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, not for me to say, I guess. Who knows what the audience wants? But it's I, – I can say for certain, having taught in schools and taught, you know – different age groups. I think this book is quite teachable. I could imagine myself using this book in a class to teach, you know, high schoolers or something. What do you think about its humor or its age appropriateness? I think that um, the humor, maybe like, 
I think that kids, younger kids, um, elementary school and stuff, they, they would appreciate um, the action-packed aspect of it. Like, it's very fast-paced. It goes along. But as far as, like, the, the bigger themes of justice and even the humor, I think, would be totally lost on them. Um, I'm not sure about middle school. Middle school might be able to pick up on some of the, the humor and some of the themes. But definitely it's something that I would, I would, I would be able to teach in a high school setting so yeah but for yeah, I, really young kids it would just be about like yeah the wild west aspect of it that's the only thing that i think that they would really appreciate about the book i think i just have a strange and very skewed sense of what kids want to or should be reading maybe because i was in a middle school and and it was a middle school academically that was not doing well and so a lot of the push there was to motivate kids to read who were reluctant or maybe didn't have a history of reading all that so i think a lot of my opinions about what kids want to read come from the perspective of you have to persuade them aggressively like they're not going to read a thing unless it's a you know the perfect voice the perfect entertainment level all that stuff but i i am skeptical of this uh, just because yeah. and maybe let me do tack on a quick aside i listened to a podcast the other day about the upcoming wheel of time series that amazon did or is adopting did you hear mm-hmm. hear about this they're finally trying to put wheel of time to film or to, to a tv show i haven't read wheel of time so I read two of those of 15 books when I was younger. I think late middle school or maybe freshman year. The series didn't grip me, but I remember reading a couple of them because I like fantasy and stuff. Anyway, but in the podcast, there was a person talking about how they read them with their parents, like when they couldn't really read and their parents would read the book to them. And then he also, in the interview, the guy who was the showrunner of this new show said that he his um, father read with him Lord of the Rings when he was young. He didn't say an age. I would guess between like eight and ten or something. You know that age when you would at night lay in bed with the kid and read them a book. I have to imagine that cuts off around middle school, right? Like, are there middle yeah, school parents for doing? Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, there's an age range to that for sure. But so in my brain, though, I hear all that and I'm like, what child would find? Am I just drastically underestimating kids? Co- not just comprehension levels, but sort of intellectual and emotional range of the complexity of a story they want to hear about and like aren't they just going to read captain underpants uh, why wouldn't they it's you know right. captain uh, so I, i'm not sure about this quote i'll trust in both of these people as they have children so i you know put my faith in that but i i do think it has a universality i do think she's an incredible construction the 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 going out of your way to compliment this as appealing to any age Maybe it's my teacher cynicism, but I, I I am a bit skeptical of that. But, you know, respect to what works. I bet if you sold the voice, if you read it to a kid in a fun way, Maddie has great zingers. Yeah. Yeah. If you added your own, like, ew, I wouldn't like that, or ew, trash, or something like that, maybe yeah, younger yeah. ones could get it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just felt neutrally, and I appreciated a lot of the jokes. I do wonder what age range. You know, the the quote when she makes fun of him saying, I would have kissed you and either one would be as gross. There's a yeah. version of that on a Disney show I can imagine that would get a kid laughing. I just don't think it's her humorous, wry way of saying it, which made me laugh on the page. So it, right. <laughs> I just wonder if there's kind of a break there in how I'm imagining it. But again, that maybe comes down to parent, parental delivery in the moment, so... Yeah. Cool. And that was the only other quote I pulled. Any other thoughts on those bits of critical assistance? Uh, nope. Okay. Any other thoughts on True Grit by Charles Portis, which I found to be just a stellar read? I also, like, I loved it. It was so Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Fantastic. One of the gems we've discovered so far, for sure, on the pod. We appreciate, as always, you listening to this entire thing. Thanks for sticking with us and hopefully reading along, as always. 
We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Give those a follow. Any podcast platform you found us at, please like, subscribe, share with your friends and family, etc. We do have other books coming up in order, so Amanda's going to talk you through those now in case you want to read ahead or just keep up with us and what we'll be doing. Uh, Amanda, what do we have coming up? We've got three novels coming up. Um, the first one is Homegoing by Yad Jesse, and her last name is spelled G-Y-A-S-I. And then we have They Both Die at the End by Adam Silvera. And finally, we have Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. And all pretty manageably sized novels. They Both Die yeah. at the End is the longest, but it's also young adult, so it will be a quick read, I bet. I don't think it's yeah. going to be a dense literary, um, you know, masterwork or something. I, I I don't know anything about it unless, except for my research of it. So, yeah, but I'm sure it'll be a quick read. Oh yeah. Excellent. Okay. Well, again, thanks for listening folks. And until next time, we'll see you between the pages. <laughs>